This morning's reading comes from Revelation chapter 3, and you can find it on page 1236 in the Church Bibles, beginning at verse 14, to the church in Laodicea. <clears throat> to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold, refined in the fire, so that you can become rich, and white clothes to wear, so that you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes, so that you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Good morning. We come this morning to the end of our series in the book of Revelation. Uh, I wish we could go on and perhaps at some point we will. Uh, but for now, this is the end of our journey, just as it was the end uh, of John's metaphorical journey through Asia Minor, uh, through these seven churches that sort of represent the, the postal route, uh, the, the, the route a letter would take through the region. We started at Ephesus, and here we are in Laodicea, the end of the line. And if you were with us at the beginning of this series, you'll perhaps remember that the sort of dominant metaphor that we've used for talking about what the book of Revelation is and, and the way that it works is, is, is the idea of peeling back a curtain. Really, that's what the word uh, revelation here means, apocalypse in, in, in Greek. What it means, it's, it, it's a sort of showing what is real behind what you see. So, if you just turn back with me a, a page to chapter uh, one, you'll see that the, the first chapter is actually a peeling back of the curtain to reveal cosmic realities, particularly the exalted Jesus Christ. Uh, so, we're, we're given a, a sort of glimpse of the glory of God himself. Uh, and then in chapter 1, verses 9 to 19, there's this picture of uh, an unimaginably glorious Jesus. 
so exalted that John, his great friend in life, falls at his feet as they dead when he witnesses the glory of this risen, ascended Jesus. But there is Jesus right in the middle of the churches. He's walking, uh, John sees him walking amongst uh, seven lampstands, holding seven stars in his hand. And it's this picture of, of Jesus there in the midst of the churches, but also holding the spiritual reality of the churches in his hand. It's intimate, it's close. And each letter to this point has begun with a line from that description of Jesus in the second half of chapter one. These kind of slightly confusing images like uh, Jesus being there with a sword coming out of his mouth which represents his his sort of powerful word. Uh, The church in Pergamum is told, I am the one with the double-edged sword coming out of my mouth. And and so it is with each of the other six churches. There's something from that vision. But Laodicea is a little bit different because the description of Jesus in verse 14 is this. These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. It doesn't come from that section describing Jesus at home with the church, with the churches, but it comes from this sort of cosmic vision of Jesus as the ruler over everything. The ruler of the creation, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. And I want to suggest that as we look at this letter to the church in Revelation, that will actually be quite an important observation. I think this letter is probably the most famous of Jesus' letters to the churches in the book of Revelation. Uh, I think it's famous for two reasons. One, because this is the the church that makes Jesus sick. I mean, literally, uh, look at what he says in verse 15. I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. That word that's translated spit is the word that gives us the word emetic in English. Now, if you don't know what an emetic is, it's something that you swallow to make you vomit. And normally this word is just translated vomit, but um, it's, uh, it's more polite <laughs> to say I'm gonna spit you out of my mouth, but you get the point. This church somehow makes Jesus physically ill and he is literally gonna spew them out of his mouth if nothing changes. So that's pretty dramatic, isn't it? That's pretty dramatic language, it's pretty shocking. So I think that thing of not being hot or cold or lukewarm, uh, that's, that's quite a, 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 an idea we're kind of aware of. If we're familiar with the Bible, if we're familiar with Christian things, we, we, we perhaps have picked up on that bit of the letter. And then right at the end, Uh, In uh, verse 20, we have what's probably the most famous verse from the book of Revelation, sort of certainly in the wider world. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. 
It inspired Holman Hunt's famous painting. And if you've ever done the Alpha course, uh, you'll be familiar with that painting, with uh, a door with a handle only on the inside and Jesus standing at the door. And yet I want to suggest that both of those aspects of the letter, both of those things in the letter, are some of the most misunderstood things in the New Testament as well. And will mask from us what Jesus is really saying to the church through this letter. To help us to understand, let me tell you a little bit about Laodicea as a place. Uh, there it is uh, at the heart of Asia Minor, uh, and it is a very desirable address to have. If you've got Laodicea at the end of your address, it's a bit like having Monaco or Belgravia or uh, you know, one of the smarter bits of Paris at the end of your address. It says you made it. You see, Laodicea was a very wealthy place. It wasn't a huge place, but it stood at the crossroads of the major routes through Asia Minor uh, and had become a center for banking. Uh, and if people needed credit notes, uh, honoring, and, uh, uh, and that sort of thing, Laodicea is the place they would go to. It had become astonishingly wealthy for its size. In fact, in AD 20, Laodicea was completely demolished by an earthquake. We know only too well at the moment, don't we, how uh, that part of the world, modern-day Turkey, uh, is prone to earthquakes. Well, Laodicea was leveled by one and found the money itself to rebuild refusing the offer of imperial grants to uh, assist in the rebuilding, Laodicea rebuilt itself out of its own wealth. That gives you some idea of the kind of place that it was. Uh, and roaming the hills around Laodicea, there were a, a, a quite rare, uh, very specific to the area, kind of black sheep that produced a very, very fine wool. Uh, and as a result of that, Laodicea had become famous for its garments trade as well. It was a sort of fashion center of, of Asia Minor. Another thing that, along with banking, boosted its wealth. And then a third thing that boosted the wealth was the sort of very mineral-rich uh, soil and indeed very mineral-rich water uh, that allowed them to produce um, sort of ointments that were useful in the treating of various ailments, particularly those of the ears and of the eyes. I mean, we find it hard, don't we, to imagine what life was like in the first century. We, we enjoy comforts that were unimaginable even to medieval kings. You know, the fact that if you've got a headache, you can take an aspirin would be mind-blowing. So if you had something wrong with your eyes or uh, something going on with your ears, something that could bring some relief was, well, a dream come true. And Laodicea was famous for these uh, ointments that could bring relief. And it was famous for one other thing. Its water made you sick. Ten miles up the road in Colossae, uh, there was uh, a, a, a whole kind of plethora of cold springs that produced clear, cold drinking water. Across the valley in Hierapolis, they had hot springs. It was a bit like Bath. 
You know, Bath to the Romans was the place where you went to bathe in the hot springs to ease the aching of your body and, and where you drank the hot sulfurous water bubbling up out of the earth uh, in order to ease the diseases of the digestive system. And Hierapolis was like that, famous for its hot springs. But Laodicea had no natural water source. It pumped everything across an aqueduct. And baking in the warm Mediterranean sun, you can guess what the water was like by the time it reached the people in Laodicea. It was a bit like our water, but even harder, so that um, the, uh, the aqueduct itself was kind of completely furred up with calcium deposits. It was famous for making you ill if you drank the water, this lukewarm It's hard to find a word to describe what it must have been like. So when Jesus says, I know your deeds, you're neither cold nor hot, we ought to just stop for a moment. We think we know what he's saying, don't we? You're lukewarm. You're like a cup of tea that's been left for too long. You're tepid, and if I drink you, it's going to make me ill. And and the point is, we think, once upon a time, you were spiritually hot, You had this fervor. You were really on fire for the Lord. And we get that sort of metaphor, don't we, from the fact that the Holy Spirit descending at Pentecost comes in flames of fire. We have this idea that that hot is good spiritually. And because this church isn't hot, we think what they really need is to be heated up. But look what Jesus says. He deliberately puts them both ways round so that you're not left thinking, oh, well, it's just that, they, that they've, the temperature's cooled a bit. He says, you're neither cold nor hot. And then he says, you're not hot or cold. Why would Jesus want a church to be cold if the aim is hotness? Why would he prefer that they would be cold rather than lukewarm? Well, maybe he's saying something a little bit different. Maybe what he's actually saying is not your spiritual ardor has cooled and I want to warm you up again maybe what he's saying is you have become so like the city around you that you're indistinguishable from it you're not like Colossae you're not like Hierapolis you are completely Laodicea through and through so look what he says to them I'm about to spit you out of my mouth you say I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. How Laodicean is that? No thanks, Rome. We don't need your money. We'll rebuild the city ourselves. We've got plenty of money. We don't need anything. And this church has become completely indistinguishable from the world around it. They're comfortable complacent and completely lost. Look what Jesus says. You say I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. As they look around themselves, the church, members of the church in Laodicea see fashionable, 
wealthy, comfortable people. But when Jesus looks at them, he sees people who are utterly to be pitied. You've got nothing, he says. Your situation is desperate. You're like those people we see fleeing the earthquake with nothing but the clothes on their back. Except Jesus says, you haven't even got that. You're naked in this town known for the rag trade. You're naked. In this town known for eye ointment, you're blind. You can't even see. You are so lost. There is no church, I think, in in these seven letters whose own estimation of itself and whose real situation are more at odds with each other. In each of the other six churches, even where Jesus has terrible things to say, even where there's awful corruption and gross immorality, Jesus has something positive to say to the church. Even the church in Pergamum, the church in Thyatira, where if we were to visit those churches, we would be horrified at some of what we would behold. Jesus has got something good to say. But here, in Laodicea, there is nothing. What's interesting is there's nothing shocking either, is there? There's no scandal here. There's no moral outrage. There's no denying of Jesus under persecution. There's no persecution as far as we can see. This is just a church that has lost contact with Jesus. Do you see, don't you think that's the point of verse 20? Relative to this church, where is Jesus? Where is he to be found? Outside. He writes to a church and says, I'm outside knocking on the door. Perhaps that's why the description of Jesus at the very beginning of the letter is different from the others because it's not taken from that picture of Jesus walking among the lampstands. Jesus says to this church where everything seems fine, you've locked me out. And here I am standing at the door and knocking. Let me in. It's not a picture of the individual who has not yet met Jesus opening the door and letting him into their lives. It is the scandalous and shocking picture of the church that has shut Jesus out from their midst. And that's what makes the church in Laodicea so terrifying. Everything looks fine And yet, if you were to tell the people at Laodicea, if if somehow it were proved that God didn't exist, I don't think it would make any difference to them at all. It's a church that's busy being a church 
but doesn't think it needs Jesus. So what does he say to them? You say, I am rich, I've acquired wealth, I don't need a thing. Now, I'm, I warn you, I'm, I'm about to show you spiritually what may be the most dangerous thing you ever see. Are you ready? You will never, I would suggest, see anything more dangerous to your soul than that. Persecution, trial, temptation, None of it seems to get close to money in the New Testament, as far as I can see, in terms of its spiritual danger. Because you see, if you've got money, you can easily think you don't need anything else. And you can even think you don't need Jesus. Which is why this peeling back of the curtain is so important. When you peel back the curtain in Laodicea, you see that they have stopped trusting Jesus and started trusting money. What would a Laodicean church look like? Or, or take a step back from that. If you wanted to create a Laodicean church, what would you do? Well, I guess you'd make sure that everyone in it was physically and fiscally comfortable. That their lives were easy. That they didn't have any deep, real, existential worries about life. In, in many ways, if you wanted to create in a laboratory the conditions for the church in Laodicea, what you would do is create a middle-class Church of England congregation. Wouldn't you? And these sorts of jokes about the Church of England have been around forever. I grew up in Oxford, and there's a street in Oxford called The Turl. And it runs from Broad Street at one end to the High Street at the other. And it goes past various colleges, Lincoln and Brasenose, and Jesus College. And the joke that goes around is that the Church of England is like the Turl, because it goes from the broad to the high, bypassing Jesus on the way. And a respectable, comfortable, middle-class, wealthy church can quite easily become very interested in the things of being church and very disinterested in the things of Jesus. Which means that while I would love to look at my own heart, while I would love to be able to, to, to look at a church family like this and say, there's no way we could ever be like the church in Laodicea. We're more likely to be like the church in Laodicea than any other church of the seven, looking at our circumstances. Now, I know that, that is not, it is not by any means true that everyone who is gathered here this morning or everyone who's watching at home uh, is comfortably off or middle class or anything like that. I don't mean to say that, but you, you know, if you were to sort of pick someone at random, that's the feel, isn't it? That's the background I'm from. What is the great temptation for a church like that if it is not self-sufficiency, if it is not complacency, if it is not quietly shutting Jesus out, because actually, you know, sometimes Jesus, you do make things a little bit complicated. 
How would you spot that you were like the church in Laodicea? How would we spot that we're like the church in Laodicea? Well, I suppose one way of putting it might be that our life makes perfect sense to the world around us. It should be the case, shouldn't it, that someone who doesn't know Jesus, someone looking into a church from the outside ought to say, you're weird. I can't quite make sense of you. I can't make sense of the way that you live. Because someone who doesn't believe in God should not really be able to understand how a community with God at its heart really functions. My life should not make sense to people who don't believe in God, should it? It should only be the fact that God is at the heart of of who I am that makes sense of it. I I think we've talked about money. Uh, Think about John Lang, the founder of Lang Construction. He made an unimaginable amount of money in his lifetime. Like really mind-blowing. Like in the 1970s, he was giving away hundreds of millions of pounds to churches and to world mission. He never moved out of the first house they moved into when he got married, a modest suburban home. He gave away mind-bending amounts of cash and kept almost nothing for himself. When he died, he, I believe he left 317 pounds in his will. One of the richest men in his generation. Now, how does that make sense if you don't believe in the resurrection? How does that make sense if you don't believe that when Jesus says, don't store up for yourself riches on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. You can see, can't you, in his life that he really believed that true riches are found in Jesus Christ. So he happily gave away almost everything. And not just at the end of his life, but throughout his life. I wonder if you notice how Jesus begins what he has to say to the church. Verse 15. Did you see that? I know your deeds. Our lives tell the story of our hearts. Our lives tell what's really going on with us spiritually. Jesus says, I know your deeds. So I know all about you. You're you're living just like the rest of Laodicea. There's no difference at all. So what we do with our money does tell a story. I promise you, this isn't to beat up on giving. Give it all somewhere else, that's fine. But don't let money rule your life. Don't trust it, it will betray you. Jesus described here as uh, the faithful witness, the ruler of God's creation, the one bit from chapter one that isn't repeated is the firstborn from the dead. We've been hearing how he has defeated death. Money can't do that for you. I want to suggest one other thing that is an easy way of taking my own temperature personally and the temperature of the church. And that's prayer. Now, are you anything like me in that 
If something really difficult happens in your life, if there's something really challenging, prayer seems suddenly to come very naturally, doesn't it? You know, when, when bad news comes, when there's something I'm really worried about, I find it so easy to pray. But when life is easy and comfortable, and time is pushed and I'm busy and there's lots to do, prayer quite easily gets just pushed out. And yet prayer is the heart of the Christian life, isn't it? It's the expression of the relationship we say we have with God. That's perhaps quite an uncomfortable thing to reflect on. Am I actually living as if I don't really need God in my life? Am I praying? And if I'm not praying, the klaxons should start sounding. It's the prayerless church that makes Jesus sick. So when I say, as I frequently do, and it will get boring, I promise, that the prayer meeting is the most important meeting of the month, it's not hyperbole. I'm not making it sound more important than it is because I want more people there. If as a church we are not praying, our corporate life is telling a story of self-reliance, of being in danger of shutting Jesus out. If we really want to thrive, if we really want to grow, we will surely express that in fervent and frequent prayer. Look, if you got the letter to the church in Laodicea, that's a real howler, isn't it? In, in Harry Potter terms, it's a stinker of a letter to receive. And if you've been watching all the other letters, you've been sort of thinking, well, he's going to have something nice to say about us, but he's got nothing nice to say. Except this in verse 19. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Well, if there's one thing you can say for the church in Laodicea, it's that it's had a bit of a rebuke from Jesus, can't you? Well, what does that mean about them? Verse 19, those whom I love. When I was reading these verses and, and, and sort of pondering over them uh, as I prepared for this morning, through this week, I, I actually found myself moved to tears by the compassion of Jesus for this arrogant, complacent, and self-regarding church. He doesn't hate them. He absolutely loves them. So he says, you're throwing your lives away. Come instead. You, you think you're rich, but you're so poor. Come to me and I will make you rich beyond measure. I will give you gold refined in the fire. Come and buy it from me. You can be rich. I'll cover your shame. I'll give you salve so that you can really see. And then amazingly, the picture he paints at the very end of what he has to offer to these people and what he has to offer to us is not one of kind of grudging welcome on the edge of, 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 the, of the royal courts of heaven. 
He says, first of all, if you let me in, I will come and eat with you. It'll be intimate. It'll be like a family meal. And in the end, I will welcome you right into the very heart of heaven. I was victorious and I sat down on my father's throne and I will give you the right to sit with me on mine. In other words, Jesus says, I want your relationship to me to be like my relationship to my father. Jesus, eternally beloved as the son of God. Jesus, utterly glorified. And he says, I want your relationship to me to to be like that. I'm going to glorify you. I'm going to love you with the love that is at the heart of the universe. You're going to be drawn in, somehow be drawn in to the very love which is within the Godhead itself. You're going to be to me like I am to my father. Jesus doesn't offer grudging welcomes and he doesn't offer partial hospitality. He says to the church, I am going to make you greater than you ever imagined and I'm going to love you in a way that you don't imagine you could be loved. So great is his compassion. Even for those who naturally would make him sick. It may be that you feel a bit Laodicean this morning. And it may be that you are a bit Laodicean this morning. That actually an independent observer would find it hard to see any difference between you and your neighbor in your priorities in life, in the things that you really strive for and care about. And Jesus does rebuke us if that's us today. But he does so because he loves us and because he wants to offer us something so much greater than the empty things we're living for. With Jesus at the heart of our church life, we are going to look a bit weird. And that's a really good thing. Should we pray together? Heavenly Father, we pray that our church life and our personal lives would not make sense to a watching world, but for knowledge of you. Lord, we thank you that you offer riches that this world could never deliver. You offer peace and safety we could never find for ourselves. You offer us a home more permanent and more wonderful than we've ever dared to hope for. And Father, we pray that as we come to the end of this series in Revelation, that you will give us grace to really live with you at the heart of our church life and our personal lives. Be our priority, we pray. Help us to know the greatness of Jesus and the great privilege of following him and even of suffering for him, just as he has suffered for us. So Lord, give us grace by your spirit and make us a church that is pleasing to our Lord Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen.